everybody. My name is Jasmine Nicole, and this is the first episode of Seasoned Crime for 2022, where I give you a story about a minority. I hope that you all had a happy and safe holiday. I completely enjoyed my time off. I took a week off of my actual um, nine to five job, and I went and hung out in Southern California for a little bit. And then I spent the rest of the time just catching up with the podcast and life in general. I am literally nonstop since I've started this podcast. Um, If I'm not at work, I'm at home doing podcast stuff. So to be able to just take a breath and do things without always feeling so behind was exactly what I needed. Now I'm back and I'm ready to tackle this new year. In the last episode I did before the break, the Alexis Murphy episode, I mentioned that one of my personal resolutions for the podcast was to hit a thousand show downloads before the end of the year. I can happily say that we officially did that as of December 17th, about two weeks before the year ended. So I just wanted to take a minute and say thank you to every single person that has been on this ride with me. I literally started from zero. When I decided to do this, my boyfriend was the only person who I'd even shared this idea with or told about it before I put it out. So the fact that I have more than two listeners is mind blowing to me. Speaking of my boyfriend, he actually gave me the idea for today's episode. He asked me to do this one a while ago, but this was so close to home that I wanted to take the time and be able to do it right. I kept putting it off and then my sister suggested it to me as well. So I figured why not make this the first episode of the new year? This is my personal hometown murder. I was living in the same city as the victims and the murderer in today's story. And to date, this case still sends chills through everybody in our area when it comes up. Now, I will say this case is a little bit more popular And Crime Junkie did um, mention this case in one of their double episodes that they did, but I wanted to do a full episode and give you all every single detail that I could find. Today, we're going to talk about Yasir Saeed, but we're going to put the highlight on Amina and Sarah Saeed, the family honor killings that was anything but honorable. Yasir Saeed was born January 27th of 1957 in Sinai, Egypt, and made his way to the United States in 1983 on a student visa. A few years later, in 1987, he ended up marrying an American woman named Patricia Owens. At the time, Patricia was 16 and Yasir was 30. It is said that Patricia entered the marriage as a way out of her poverty-stricken life and Yasir was able to financially provide. This wasn't just a meal ticket for Patricia, though. It came at a high price. Yasir was very abusive and demanding from the start. One time, he sliced Patricia's leg with a knife, all because she wouldn't have sex with him. This was her man, though, and she stuck beside him, and after two years of marriage, the couple began adding on to their family. Their firstborn, A son named Islam was born in 1988, Amina came in 1989, and their baby girl Sarah was born in 1990. Amina was the oldest daughter and she was so full of life. She was extremely outgoing, always had a smile on her face, and literally she would light up a room wherever she went. 
Sarah was a high achiever. She was always at the top of her class, and she also radiated with happiness. There was not a single person who had interacted with the girls who weren't in awe of their positive light and personality. Knowing how happy and bubbly these girls were at all times is even more telling of who they were as people because their home life was literally hell on earth. They weren't allowed to even have any friends, so they were each other's best friends. They had such a great sibling relationship and they were the lights of each other's lives. Yasir's possessiveness and abuse didn't stop with Patricia, though. He was extremely controlling, and he never had a problem speaking out about how he felt his daughters were constantly dishonoring him in their Islamic traditions. It wasn't just that, but when the girls were eight and nine, they went to the cops stating that Yasir sexually abused them, but a family member confirmed that Yasir was able to convince them to retract the report. Patricia, their mom, denies that the sexual abuse ever happened. Most of the time, the abuse was physical. On more than one occasion, classmates said that the girls showed up with their lips cut or bruises on their face. Amina even wrote a letter once about how he would stomp their faces with his boot. Yusir's need for total control didn't just stop inside his home. He was constantly spying on the girls by video or audio taping them without their knowledge. Amina herself once said that she was so scared to use public phones out of fear that her father would find out. Somehow, someway, he would get into everywhere and he knew everything. Sarah had a job working after school at a convenience store and that was a problem. Yasir would randomly come and record her and then punish her when she got home because he believed that she was too friendly towards the customers. Yasir desired that his girls get married, but his way, under his terms. He wanted them to go through with an arranged marriage. He had it all set up for Amina when she turned 16. He even took her to Egypt and introduced her to a much older friend of his with the expectation of giving his daughter away. However, Amina refused, and they returned back to the state. Even without accepting her father's arrangement, Amina still found love. Her and her siblings attended a Taekwondo class in the area, and it was there that they met Joseph Moreno. Her other siblings stopped going to lessons, but Amina kept going. She was good at Taekwondo, but she also didn't want to stop seeing Joseph. There was no way she could tell her dad about her boyfriend, so she kept it a secret. She would tell Joseph all the time about her dad, but Joseph just took it as, you know, he was a strict parent. I mean, think about it. They were teenagers, so if you think back to when you were teenagers, there were some kids who had extremely strict parents. Some more than others, but it wasn't unheard of. One of the things they did to try to keep it a secret was to use a code word. Whenever Amina would text Joseph the number seven, that was a sign that her dad was about to take her phone. And no matter what came next, Joseph was not to reply back. Joseph thought this was a little bit extra, but he found out exactly how right she was about this after the very first time she used the code. Shortly after he got a text with the number seven, he also got other text messages like, hey, what's up? Or can you call me? 
He knew that they had agreed to not respond and it was a good thing that he didn't because the next day at school, Amina confirmed that her dad had in fact taken her phone and that Yasir was actually the one that was sending those texts. He had spent the night driving around and randomly texting all of the phone numbers in Amina's phone, hoping to catch her up in something that would prove that she was deceiving him. Amina tried as hard as she could to keep it a secret. Amina believed that if Yasir knew about Joseph, that Joseph's life would be in danger. One time, Yasir had went out of the country, so Amina took advantage of that and went out with Joseph and his family. She attended a church function with them, but the whole time she was paranoid and anxiously looking over her shoulder, because even though she knew her father was gone, she just couldn't bring herself to relax, believing that somehow he had still managed to find a way to spy on her. Eventually, Yusir found some letters that Amina had written to Joseph. Amina lied and said that she knew she wasn't allowed to have a boyfriend, but she had always dreamed of having one, so she wrote these letters to her imaginary boyfriend. Like, just just imagine how bad things would have to be that you would rather tell your parents that you have made up and written letters to an imaginary boyfriend. As a teenager, my parents would have thought I was crazy by expecting them to believe that, but for Amina, that was better than what she thought would happen if her dad knew the truth. Amina said on multiple occasions that her father said he would kill her, and she believed it. As expected, Yasir did not believe Amina's imaginary boyfriend story. She kept as much information as she could to herself. Even when Yasir tried to beat information out of her, she held strong, not even giving up Joseph's name to keep him safe. And of course, that infuriated Yasir. Not only that, but he had also recently found out that Sarah was dating a boy as well. So one night, he packed up the family and moved them to a house about 30 miles across town. Joseph was worried when Amina wasn't in school, nor was she attending Taekwondo lessons anymore. Yasir had taken her phone, so there was no way that Amina could have reached out to him before the move. Joseph knew absolutely nothing, and knowing what Amina said her dad was capable of, this scared him, because all he had were his thoughts. Months passed, and then one day, Joseph was able to have a little bit of relief. He went to his normal Taekwondo class, and the instructor said that he had heard from Amina, and she had reached out to advise of the move. It is said that with the move, things got even worse for the girls. Yasir threatened to kill both of the girls if they didn't change their ways. That didn't detour Amina, though, because she was in love, and that love outweighed the fear of her dad. She got a burner phone so she could start back communicating with Joseph, and they immediately started planning their escape. They were both committed to running away and moving to Vegas to elope. Joseph was so committed to this that he dropped out of high school so he could work full-time to earn the money that they needed to leave as fast as possible. He was in awe of how Amina always stayed so upbeat and positive no matter what was going on and that helped motivate him to figure something out. In total they had been dating for about four years and all he wanted was for Amina to be happy. While all of this was going on with Amina and Joseph the Saeed household in general was hell for all of the women. Patricia the mother 
had became fed up, and on Christmas of 2007, she got Sarah and Amina, and they ran away to Tulsa, Oklahoma, where she had his family. They were safe and expected to stay there for a while. The death anniversary of Patricia's mom was coming up on New Year's Eve, and now that she was away from Yasir, she had planned to get the girls and drive to East Texas to go visit her mother's resting place and take her some flowers. This was supposed to be their getaway and the moment for them to just breathe a bit, but that didn't happen at all. Yasir called constantly trying to convince them to return home, and when that wasn't working, he got other family members to reach out, so the situation just became more stressful than anything. Patricia eventually gave in and told the girls that they weren't going to be able to take the trip to East Texas, and instead, they were going to go home because their dad had changed and wanted his family back together. Sarah reluctantly agreed, but Amina, she wasn't having it. She ended up running away to a friend's house in order to avoid having to go back to be with her dad. Patricia wasn't going to go home without Amina, so she went to get her, and they had a huge argument. Amina wasn't even willing to come out of the house at first, but Patricia was beating on the front door of this friend's house. And even then, Amina still held strong. Patricia stood in the driveway causing a scene and refusing to leave, saying that Yasir had turned a new leaf and he had forgiven Amina for everything that she had done to dishonor their family, so she should come back home. Amina eventually agreed to go home. January 1st, 2008, the three ladies returned back to Louisville, Texas, to their home. As soon as they got back, Yasir insisted on taking his daughters out to eat. Patricia wanted to join them, but Yasir declined, saying that he wanted to spend some father-daughter time with his girls to show them just how happy he was that they had returned back home. Yasir was a cab driver, and he got the girls in his cab and drove about 25 minutes away to Irving, Texas. The car stopped, but not at any restaurant. Instead, it was in the parking lot of the Omni Mandalay Hotel, and it was there that Yasir shot a total of 11 gunshots into his two daughters. Amina, who was 18 at the time, died instantly after being shot three times in the chest. Sarah, who was 17 at the time, was shot a total of eight times. However, she didn't die immediately. Sarah managed to call 911, and all you can hear on the recording is her pleading for help. She was screaming, help, my dad shot me. I'm dying, I'm dying. I'm not sure exactly why, but Sarah stayed connected to the 911 operator for 40 minutes before dying. And during that time, no help arrived. Yersir fled the scene, leaving his daughters in his taxi cab where they were discovered by another taxi driver. For the next 12 years, Yasir would remain on the run, with six of those being on the FBI's most wanted list, which he was placed on in 2014. He shot both of his daughters, ran off, and then just disappeared into thin air. There were a lot of leads, and the authorities followed up on all of them, but nothing ever came. They even offered a $100,000 reward for anyone who could provide information on Yasir's whereabouts, but once again, they got nothing. 
It wasn't until August of 2017 when he was spotted in Bedford, Texas, the city where the family originally lived. Yasir's son, Islam, lived at the Cooper Canyon apartment complex. On this day in particular, a maintenance man went into the unit to repair a leak in the apartment. He knocked on the door, but there was no answer, so he used his key to enter the unit. Or at least he tried to, but he couldn't get in because the deadbolt was locked. And that could only be locked from the inside, meaning that someone was home. The maintenance man continued to knock and announce himself, and eventually the man inside came and opened the door. The maintenance man went in, completed his job, and left, but the whole thing just seemed weird to him. When he got back, he told the apartment manager about what had happened, and that was a huge red flag for the manager because they were well familiar with who Islam was when they leased the place to him, and they knew the story. So the apartment manager showed the maintenance man a picture of Yusir, and the maintenance man confirmed that that was the man in the unit. They immediately called the FBI, and the FBI's Violent Task Force unit showed up at about 6.30 p.m. that same night. The FBI agent went to the apartment door and knocked, asking for Islam permission for them to come and search the unit. This caused Islam to get upset, and he refused to let them in at all. Phone records would later show that during this time that the FBI was there, Islam placed a call to his uncle, advising that there was a problem. By law, since Islam didn't let them come in and he refused entry, the FBI couldn't just go in. So it wasn't until about 1 a.m. that next morning that they were able to get a search warrant signed off by a judge. They then busted down the locked door and forced their way into the unit. But by this time, the place was empty. There was no one in the building, but the patio door had been slid open. Based on the scene outside of the door, it looked that someone had jumped from their unit into the bushes below where they found a pair of eyeglasses, indicating that someone had dropped them, so they kept those glasses for possible evidence. Now, me personally, I, I, I guess I just don't see how the FBI shows up to potentially capture someone who was on their most wanted list for over 10 years, yet not one person thought to keep an eye on the back. And then this man was able to jump out and run off with no one noticing. But I don't know. I guess I, sh I don't know. Maybe it's just me. <laughs> anyway, since they had no capture, they just gathered any evidence that they could find from the apartment. They got things such as cigarette butts and a toothbrush that they found in a suitcase in the closet. The FBI lab in Quantico cross-referenced the evidence that they collected to the DNA of Sarah and Amina, and they determined that it was a match, and those items had been used by Yasir Saeed. Twelve days after the apartment raid, they located Islam Saeed at the customs border, hiding in a vehicle, trying to cross into Canada. But there was no sign of Yasir. It would be three years later, in August of 2020, when the FBI started doing 24-hour surveillance on a home in Justin, Texas, which is about 30 minutes from Bedford, Yusir's last spotted location. The home had been recently purchased by Yusir's niece, his brother, Yasim's daughter. Two days after they started doing their around-the-clock surveillance, they noticed a shadow walk by the window of the home, 
which immediately stood out because Yasir's brother and his niece were the only one living in the home, but they had already left. That gave them enough to get a search warrant, and on August 26, 2020, 12 years after murdering his daughters, Yasir Saeed was captured at the age of 63. His brother and niece also ended up being arrested for harboring a fugitive. After everyone was captured, U.S. Attorney Aaron Neely Cox spoke out saying, quote, For years, Sarah and Amina's own brother and uncle were allegedly harboring the girl's killer. In concealing Yasir Saeed from arrest, not only did these men waste countless law enforcement hours in the hunt for a brutal fugitive, they also delayed justice for Sarah and Amina. Their day of reckoning has finally arrived. We are hopeful that all three arrests will bring a measure of comfort to the girl's mother, relatives, and friends. Matthew DeSarno, who is an FBI Dallas agent in charge of the Dallas Field Division, said, The defendants provided aid and comfort to an individual who was accused of murdering his own daughters. Harboring a dangerous fugitive is unacceptable. The FBI and our law enforcement partners will pursue anyone who helps a criminal evade capture. Yasir has yet to go to trial, but he was indicted on charges of capital murder, which makes him eligible for the death penalty. His son Islam has been tried and sentenced to 10 years for concealing his father from arrest. Yasir's brother Yasim was charged as well, and he was sentenced to 12 years. Patricia, the mother of the girls, has done interviews since Yasir's capture. She said that this situation was worse than anyone could have ever imagined. She lost her entire family in one day. Her daughters were killed, her husband fled, so he was gone, and her son? Well, she hadn't really talked to him since shortly after the murders occurred, and so therefore he ended up being removed from her life as well. She couldn't understand exactly what was going on at first, and Yasir's brother was the one who initially took her in when everything had happened and Yasir fled. Patricia said when she was staying with him, he told her, quote, Yasir didn't want to have whores for daughters. He had also mentioned something along the lines about how she should feel lucky. It was a good thing that he had left their bodies there so she could have a proper burial because if it were him, he would have made the bodies disappear. He disgustingly spoke on this so-called honor killing as if it was something that the girls deserved based on their behavior. His own nieces. Of course, Patricia left from there as soon as she could. She spent the next 12 years in fear that he would come back and find her. But now that he's been captured, she feels such a relief, not only because he can't hurt her, but now she is sure that her daughters can actually rest in peace. An honor killing is defined as the murder of an individual, either by an outsider or by a member of the family, seeking to protect what they see as dignity and honor of their family. Since Yasir hasn't been tried with anything yet, all of this is alleged. Some believe that this was an honor killing, and others, including Patricia, don't agree with that at all, and instead think that this was just the result of him not being able to control his daughters as he believed he should. 
this is tough for so many reasons. As I mentioned before, this is my personal hometown murder. I have some kind of connection to every single city that I mentioned. So to know that this was happening right up the street is heartbreaking. Not only that, but this was the girl's father. The man that was supposed to be their first love, their protector and their provider. That was the person that they feared the most. I can't imagine going home and living with someone who has said over and over that they will kill you and to know that with everything in them, they mean it, especially at that age. Being a teenager is hard. Being in high school is hard. You're figuring out the world and who you are and for your home to be the worst place for you to be is so sad. To Islam and Yersir's family, who helped him hide for 12 years, (laughs) there's a special seat in hell for you all right next to Yersir. Father or not, brother or not, to this man, he shot and killed his daughters and then ran. So the fact that they helped him hide is beyond wild to me. Just as Patricia had mentioned, I hope that now Amina and Sarah are truly able to rest in peace knowing that their father and those who helped him have been put away. That was today's story, our first story of 2022. Thanks to everyone for sticking around and joining us again after our break. I am back to regular scheduled episodes every Tuesday. Remember, you can reach me via email, seasonedcrime at gmail.com, or on our Instagram page at seasonedcrime. You can also check out the Season Crime page on TikTok to see short video reviews of each episode. I hope you all have a great first week of the year, and I'll be back next Tuesday with another story about a minority. Have a good week, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of Season Crime. Today's episode was researched, edited, and recorded by your host, Jasmine Nicole.